Topics that concern your life, your community, and your safety. This is 5-0-Info on Arizona's news station, KTAR News, 92.3 FM. Here's what you need to know. All right, good morning. I'm Sergeant Steve Ream with the Phoenix Police Department. Today I'm joined by Sergeant uh, Troy Hillman, who's retired from the Phoenix Police Department. And this is another edition of the 5-0 Show. I wanted to thank Bonneville Media for this time and Ed, our producer. And uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Troy? Um, how did Start with uh, where you grew up and how you got into law enforcement. And Yeah, I, I grew up in a small to mid-sized town in the middle of uh, the state of Illinois. And um, I'd always kind of been fascinated. I, my, my dad was a big Clint Eastwood fan, so I think I got uh, keyed in on, on law enforcement and the Dirty Harry type movies so enjoyed it um but i i didn't think that i could maybe make a living on it so i went to school became a uh, cpa um was just bored to death in a cubicle in chicago and uh decided that i i just wanted to follow my passion which was to to help people and uh inject a little more action into my life um signed up with phoenix pd in 1997 and uh retired in uh last year in december Nice. So, how did how did you p- pick Phoenix? Uh, I wanted somewhere warm. Uh, I did a ride along back there, and, and I uh, was at four in the morning, and I was freezing, and it was below zero, and I didn't want to get out of the patrol car. So, I realized that uh, I needed to head somewhere west, uh, where it's sunny. Uh, Phoenix uh, at the time was a growing city. It still is, actually, obviously, um, but it was uh, just I saw the palm trees and was enamored by it, and uh, signed me up. So. Yeah. It's sunny. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned you you used to do accounting, and I we won't talk too much about it now, but I know you do it now. But how how did accounting translate into uh, the police department? And well, accounting has a lot of rules, as you know. You got to do X, Y, and Z, and you got to do it right, um, and you got to be highly organized. So. What I found were a lot of those skills actually translated into um, not only the, the basics, you know, the kind of the patrol officer role of rules and enforcement and probable cause, but that also translated into what, what later became my uh, the, the true passion of my career, which be- was becoming a cold case homicide sergeant um, in terms of just root organization and looking through what kind of was likened, to, I hate to liken it, some somewhat of a sorts to inventory of what do we got here? What are we looking at? How many cases? Uh, what are what's the state of these cases? So I was just trying to get a handle on that. So those those skills kind of parlayed into what I did in, on the police department. Okay, yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. So you said your passion was uh, when you were a cold case sergeant at the, in the homicide unit. Do you want to talk about how the unit came about and give us a brief description of the unit and kind of what it is now and what a cold case means. Yeah, so back in 2008, I was uh, doing serving as a role as called an admin sergeant of the Violent Crimes Bureau, um, basically just making sure everything ran for the commander. Um, and I had a very visionary lieutenant by the name of Joe Knott. He uh, said, hey, I, I need somebody to run the, the squad, and I need somebody to get organized, and we got a couple grants coming down the pike, and, and just your skill set is would be beneficial. And uh, so... One thing led to another. I tested for the position, got the position, and uh, I think there were times when I looked at it and said, you know, what the heck did I get it, get myself into? Um, because we really, 
I had a hard time quantifying the exact number of cases that we were carrying on the books, and then how far do you go back? Do you go back to the 40s, 50s? Uh, how hard you know do you look at those cases? Because pretty much, I hate to say it, a lot of those people, uh, the suspects, the original investigators, uh, anybody. Are, are deceased. So um, just trying to get organized, trying to figure out um, how to uh, look at cases, rate them, uh, go through them, see what's been tested with the lab, what hasn't, um, various, uh, you know, inventory, the inventory as far as what's been collected as far as evidence uh, was kind of uh, not a mess, but they just didn't, they weren't thinking DNA back in the 1970s. They weren't thinking, so they would maybe package something a little differently than what we would now um, thinking in DNA land. So um, just just a, a myriad of challenges, um, a series of projects, but we were able to kind of line them up, uh, figure out how we're going to tackle them. And uh, I assembled a really good, uh, I call it the dream team of detectives that were hardworking, but also very knowledgeable and very good at what they did. And uh, we just started uh, in there rifling through the cases. And our, our solve rate at, kind of in our heyday was uh, we were solving about 12 to 15 cases a year, uh, which may not sound a lot, but keep in mind those cases have already been worked. They've already been looked at, some of them two, three times. Uh, or more, and uh, we were able to go in and, and put together a case and uh, kind of uh, convince the county attorney to uh, charge the case. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned the DNA, and I try to explain this to people. When when did detectives and law enforcement start knowing what DNA was, and then when did they kind of start, like you said, collecting evidence and? storing evidence the proper way for the DNA before they were even able to test it. Because I know detectives, you know, you know, in the 90s or 80s start had an idea of what DNA would be, but they weren't able to test it at the time, but they started collecting evidence. Yes, I think the, the mid uh, to late 90s is when DNA kind of uh, came on scene, so to speak. And um, I think that's when detectives started to, to start to collect it. I don't know if everybody knew exactly what to do do with it per se or to triage, you know. Uh, so, but one of our cases that I, I think we're going to get into or two cases um, were kind of one of the first cases that the, the Department of Public Safety, actually their lab, um, kind of moved forward with along in conjunction with our lab, uh, the Arizona Canal murders, we call them. So uh, that it was a, basically to answer your question is the late 90s. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So anybody that's lived in Phoenix for a long time is familiar with the canal murders. And so this is still a case that hasn't been adjudicated for anybody out there listening. So I understand that if you can't answer any questions, that's okay. Just, you know, we understand that. We don't want to jeopardize the case for the victim's families. So do you want to start talking about the canal murders? And I remember it as a kid and it Watching it on TV on the news, it scared me because I lived near a canal and I was afraid of going out on the canal and this might happen to me because there was a series and nobody knew exactly what was going on and they were so horrific. But do you want to kind of describe how, how it started out? Yeah, absolutely. In uh, 1992, I believe it was November, uh, Angela Barrasso, who was, uh, I believe it was her 22nd birthday, actually, she went for a, a, a dusk bike ride uh, along the canal starting at uh, the Cactus Freeway area. I, I believe at the time it was called Woodstone Apartments. Um, and then uh, she she never returned uh, from that bike ride, uh, and she was found um, brutally murdered uh, pretty close to that, actually, apartment complex uh, the next day. Um, and it was something that uh, 
looking at it now, I mean, it was it was horrific. I don't think that I wasn't living here in Phoenix at that time, but it, there was nothing that even uh, came to that rose to that level of violence, uh, and it almost spoke to a serial killer. Although we didn't uh, have anything like that, any other cases that we believe matched at the time. Um, so then the original uh, the case agent and scene agent uh, Russ Davis was the case agent uh, extremely good detective very thorough uh, he took the case uh, moved it forward with uh, Mike Meisler was the scene detective um, they just put a ton of work in on it um, uh, the community was scared tried to help um, tons of tips and leads came in over the years uh, and then about uh, September of that next year uh, Melanie Bernas, uh, she was 17. She went for a bike ride around dusk, um, headed up from the Arcadia area towards Metro Center. Uh, the next day, uh, she was found brutally murdered. Uh, and there were some uh, things that made the investigators believe that, this, hey, this could be this could be serial. There was um, some redressing. Um, and then back with uh, uh, Angela Brasso, the first murder, there was a beheading. So there were just some things that spoke to uh, an extreme level of violence. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the investigators worked really hard on that case. Um, and unfortunately, numerous leads were ruled out. Um, the case went uh, ineffectively cold, uh, let's say the mid-90s. Yeah. And so talk about that. That was one thing that, you know, maybe our listeners don't understand. Talk about what it means that the case went cold in Phoenix. Yeah, typically on a our, our definition, and we, we kind of borrowed this from this. So in 2007, the, the governor at the time, I believe it was Dan Brewer, had a task force, and, and it was to, to really get a handle on the statewide cold cases that we had and kind of get everybody on the same page. And what they decided was their definition was it, any cold cases, anything over a year, and no viable leads. So that's the okay. kind of the textbook definition, if you will. So the key is no viable leads. Yes. Because if there is a viable lead, the normal response homicide unit in Phoenix will continue to work it right until there's not a viable lead. Then it might transfer over. Absolutely. To the and, squad. and even if it's still held by a, uh, a detective that's been in homicide for a long time, we'll stay, still try to take a look at it at the five-year mark. Uh, to give an idea of, you know, hey, what we're seeing with an independent set of eyes on what can possibly be done um, and maybe a different angle. So um, there's different review, I would call them checkpoints, that we get involved with from a cold case perspective. So, okay, so the canal murders go cold and then pick it up from there when... Yes, well, the, the late 90s, I think it was 1999, the uh, unidentified profile went into the National Offender Database, which is called CODIS, and uh, there was no hits, which means that the offender had never been arrested for an offense at, at that time. Um, and for years and years, uh, that unknown profile, it, it matched up between the two girls' murder, so we knew we were looking at the same guy. Uh, we just didn't know who it was, and he hadn't been arrested, or like I said, he was dead. Um, so the case agent retired, I believe, in 1995. The scene agent retired in 2010, 2011-ish. Um, we took it over from a cold case perspective, and we had always wanted to work um, – something as a team i think officers detectives sometimes have a tendency to uh to basically um work cases kind of on their own after the initial and so we decided hey we're going to work this as a cold case team and um we really had a, a planning meeting we went back through triage the cases and uh uh it was a three and a half year journey from there and then what i mean it, it was recently solved i mean in my mind recent what for our listeners that aren't familiar what really 
broke open the case? So there were there were two things. Um, it was just a, a we stuck with it, even with doubters who said he's dead, he's dead. Why you know why are you guys? He hasn't been, he hasn't hit in the system since '99. Why are you guys trying? So it was just on a pure grid on our side of just hey, we need to know who this is. We need to give the family some idea, some degree of justice and closure. Um, but there was also a. Uh, a group back in Philadelphia known as the VDOC Society, and not a lot of people know about them, but uh, off-the-charts, smart uh, religious scholars, professors, uh, ex-law enforcement profilers. So we kind of dialed in with them and presented the case to them, and they said there's a high probability that in these type of cases that he is in your files. We had, of course, had a problem with that because our files were boxes and boxes and probably 900,000 names. So that was difficult. Um, and then in 2014, we get a call from a genealogist um, who said, I think I can help you. And her name is uh, Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. Uh, at that time, genealogy was very, very strange to and, and kind of marrying it with law enforcement was even stranger. So we were skeptical. Um, we met with her. We had our lab uh, vet her out and uh, really had a good resume with the military and prior law enforcement. Um, so we decided, you know, it can't, can't hurt. We're going to try it. Uh, we hired her, um, and she came up with a surname. And then uh, one thing led to another, and, and we arrested Brian Patrick Miller in uh, January of 2015. Yeah, that's amazing work. I mean, to go from so long to actually make an arrest and being part of some of these cases, just the relief that it brings families and – that there is an answer and that to me it's the best part is that law enforcement we don't give up especially on homicides they stay open until it's solved and someone's always working the case so i appreciate the time here troy um congratulations on retirement hope it's going well um again thanks to bonneville media for this time and i always want to remind everybody out there that if they have any information on an unsolved felony case to call silent witness at witness or they can go on our website at silentwitness.org and they can also download our app on our website so thank you again and until next time we'll see you you've been listening to 50 info on arizona's news station ktar news 92.3 fm for more about silent witness go to silentwitness.org That's silentwitness.org. Or call 480-WITNESS. That's 480-948-6377.